Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Good morning. Good to see all of you. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 13 uh, as we continue our way walking through the gospel of Luke. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there is one beneath the chair in front of you or near you, or you can follow along on your device, or you could just listen uh, as we read this kind of, I would say, interesting story. It's one of those that you come to and you're like, what does this have to do with us? And hopefully we'll discover a little bit of that today. So I'll begin reading in verse 10 of Luke chapter 13. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman who was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years, she was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Now, the scene that Luke paints is as common in his day as it would be for me to say, on a Sunday, a bunch of people showed up at a church building. Because this is what happened on Sabbath. Jewish people, even now, go to synagogue. And so it says simply that Jesus goes to a synagogue. We're actually, I don't know if you knew this, sitting in a synagogue. This is a synagogue that was built by the Jewish congregation, Temple Emmanuel, who actually now resides just a few miles uh, east of here. And this was built for Jewish people to come together to study, to learn, to hear teaching. Now, this particular synagogue was built by a Reformed Jewish congregation, and so because of some of the um, anti-Semitism that existed when they built it, they actually built it a little bit different where they wanted everything to kind of look a little bit more like a church. But in the first century world of Jesus, many of the synagogues were built where you had the teaching part or the teaching place in the middle of the room, and everyone sat in the round. And it was symbolic of saying, this is the place that Torah or the scriptures have in our congregation. And if you were teaching, you would often walk to the table and you would sit and you would read whatever the scripture was for that day, or you would sit in an elevated seat to teach. This is what Jesus is doing. 
And that's also not abnormal because if you're a rabbi, even if you're a guest, you often would be asked to teach at a synagogue on Sabbath. And so this is where he is. And while there were synagogue gatherings every day, if it's Sabbath, it means that it was actually probably pretty crowded. And if it's Sabbath, it also means that most every single person there was local. Because there were rules about how far you could travel on Sabbath. And so if you're at the synagogue on Sabbath, it means that you went to your local synagogue and you went there with the same people that you attended with every week. And it's in this context, this very common context, this very local context, this very crowded context, that it says Jesus notices a woman. Now, if the crowd there is local, this is someone that they had seen every Sabbath. This is someone that they knew her name. They knew where she lived in town. They probably knew her family. They knew a little bit about her story. They knew a little bit about where she was from and what she was about. And since she had been this way for 18 years... It's likely that there were some people who only ever knew her with this condition. And so maybe it was kind of like, well, that's just the way it is. That's the way things are. In some ways, maybe they stopped seeing her because it was so common. And they had seen her so many times. But for Jesus, it's a different story. And I don't know if... It's a different story because he sees with fresh eyes or it's his first time there. But whatever it is, he notices her. He notices, it says, that she's been crippled. She has some sort of paralysis and she can't stand up straight. And so he calls to her in the midst of the crowd, calls her forward, puts his hands on her, and she's healed. And she straightens up praising God. And you would think, especially in the context of a religious gathering, that if somebody is healed and begins praising God, everyone in the room would begin praising God. Does that make sense? <laughs> At Denver Community Church, if someone was healed, we'd all go, hmm. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah, of course it makes sense. If someone's healed, you're going to begin cheering. You're going to begin praising God. And if you think that's what happened, you'd be wrong. Let's continue reading in verse 14. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Obviously, then there's some people in the room that agree with him. You hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out and give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, which, by the way, is a term of nobility, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. You'd think people would be excited. But it turns out the synagogue leader is furious. 
And he says, there are six days for this sort of thing. Today is not one of them. Also, on your way out, if you'd like to give a financial gift, you can place it in an envelope and put it in silver metal boxes. Now let's close our time with a blessing. Like, you sit there and you think, what is this guy's problem? Why is he so angry? And it might be really easy to jump to conclusions and make a lot of assumptions about the synagogue leader, but it also, before we do that, might help to understand what might have been going on and what was likely going on in his head. Now, if you're not familiar with the Jewish faith and the Jewish tradition, they call the first five books of the Bible Torah. And in Torah, there are 613 commandments. Now, if there's 613 commandments, that may sound like a lot. But devoted Jewish people don't just say, okay, we need to obey all of those. They also begin asking questions like, what does it look like for us to live those out? And one of those commandments is found actually in the Ten Commandments, is the command around Sabbath. Now, it's not just like Sabbath was commanded once and that's it. Sabbath is a part of the conversation throughout all of the Hebrew scriptures, not just the first five books, and there's different comments made regarding it, and there's different ideas about it, and there's different um, direction given with regard to Sabbath. For example, in Exodus chapter 16, it talks about that on the Sabbath day, you are to remain in your place. And so the people asked, well, what does that mean? Does that mean remain in my house? All of us had a flashback to the pandemic just for a second. Like, I can't go anywhere? What if my place is a pretty large hunk of land? Can I walk around in my yard? Can I walk around in my fields? What about if my place is the town? Like, can I go to my neighbor's house? And then they began asking all kinds of questions about what it meant to remain in one's place. Eventually, it was this question that led to what I referred to earlier, which is called the Sabbath day journey, which is roughly about a half a mile. That's how far you're permitted to walk on Sabbath. And it all came out of this idea of Sabbath is this day of rest and don't remain in your place. Okay, so how far should we go? There's another comment made by the prophet Isaiah that on the Sabbath, you should not speak a word. And so initially people said, well, is Sabbath supposed to be a day of silence? Is Sabbath supposed to be a day where we don't speak our words? We only speak the words of God? Maybe it means that Sabbath is a day where we don't even talk about work. And it went on and on and on. Endless conversations, not only around all 613 commandments, but especially around Sabbath. The Jewish scholar James Kugel says this, about conversation around Sabbath. He said it was one thing to receive commandments from God, quite another to carry them out. For carrying them out inevitably required getting into the little details of things, specifics, not necessarily mentioned in the general law. The Sabbath laws were the object of particular interpretive scrutiny. From a very early period, no doubt, A body of authoritative interpretations accompanied the various legal prescriptions given by God to Israel. And these are reflected here and there in the Bible itself, as well as in contemporary and subsequent Jewish writings. In other words, 
There were endless opinions about Sabbath because everyone understood one thing. It's incredibly important. And rabbinic authorities, starting around the time of Jesus' day, said that it was important to establish Sabbath as the cornerstone of all Judaism. And there, were even, there was even commentary around what medical treatment could look like on the Sabbath day. So if you broke your hand, what's legal to do? They agreed that saving a life was always important and you could suspend any rule to save a life. But if this woman's been like this for 18 years and we're talking about medical treatment, she's probably not gonna die today if she's made it this long. Now that still might sound heartless to us, but for this particular synagogue leader, I mean, if Jesus is playing fast and loose with Sabbath, that's just a slippery slope. I mean, what other things is he going to begin upending? We better make sure that he doesn't do that. And so he says to Jesus and says to the woman, there's six days to do all this sort of stuff. And what is Jesus' response? He looks at the synagogue leader and says, you know what, just forget all about Sabbath. Forget about these synagogue things. This is nothing but oppressive religious structures. We need to do away with all of it. No, that's not what he says at all. Now, it's tempting, and sometimes it can be even a little comforting, especially for those who've been wounded by religion, to see Jesus as somebody who came to announce the end of any and all religion. I remember years ago, actually 20 years ago, I was at a conference and they had a speaker get up and all he did was start by talking about all the things we need to destroy in the church. And at the end, he said, we need to destroy the church itself. And people were cheering. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, man, it doesn't really take a whole lot to tear something down. And in our world today, let's be honest, tearing something down, criticizing something, critiquing something, talking about why something is terrible, somehow we've equated that with wisdom. But that's not what Jesus does here. As much as we might want to think that Jesus is all about doing away with any and all religion, that doesn't seem to be the case if you actually read through the Gospels. Which, of course, raises the question that I know is on every single person's mind here right now, and it's this. Why do we own pianos? <laughs> I mean, imagine you walk into a friend's house one day, you've never been there, and you walk through the door and you look and you go, oh, that's a beautiful piano. I didn't, I didn't know you played the piano. And they say, I don't play the piano. He said, there's a piano right there. Oh, yeah, right, that. Isn't it lovely? You're like, yeah, it's great. Um, so I know you don't play it, but I've played it since I was a kid. Mind if I tickle the ivories? <laughs> and they're like, oh, no, no, you can't do that. You say, well, why, why can't I play the piano? Is it broken? Is it not tuned? Oh, no, I take incredibly good care of it. As a matter of fact, I get it tuned twice a year. Uh, but it's just there to look at. Now, would that be a little bit odd? You own a piano, you've obviously spent money on it, but you don't play it. And if it would be odd, why would it be odd? Well, it would be odd because pianos exist to play music. It is an instrument 
for us to experience something beyond the instrument. Like, I don't know if you've ever listened to a beautiful concerto or a sonata, and you listen to it, and you're not sitting there thinking about a grand piano. You're lost in the music itself. The instrument does something and gives you an experience of something beyond itself. And so if you meet somebody who just says, oh yeah, no, I just like the way it looks, and we keep it there, and we don't let anyone touch it, and we never play it, it wouldn't make much sense at all. Maybe we could say it this way. Instruments or a piano exists to give us an experience beyond itself. The music that we can enjoy is beyond the instrument itself. And when it comes to this discussion in the synagogue, there's a piece of me that thinks that Jesus is saying like, what you are doing is you're only focused on the instrument and you forgot that it's pointing to something beyond itself. Jesus seems like he's very interested in hearing the music. He's not so interested in just protecting the instrument. Whereas the synagogue leader is like, nope, we gotta protect this instrument. And so much so he and others who are there they don't even know that there's any music being played at all. You see, the Sabbath didn't exist just for Sabbath's sake. It wasn't just another religious rule that was thrown out there to give us one more thing to obey and one more thing to talk about and one more thing to write books about and talk theology over. The Sabbath was an instrument that pointed beyond itself into something greater. And we can actually hear this in Jesus' response to the synagogue leader. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter five. Deuteronomy chapter five. This is kind of a second statement or restatement, if you will, of the 10 commandments. Deuteronomy is the first book, fifth book of the Bible. In the second, we have the book of Exodus where God gives the 10 commandments to the people. And now in Deuteronomy, they are restated. And in Deuteronomy five, verse 12, it says this. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh, seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Now, at this point, you're like, this is exactly kind of what the synagogue leader said. Correct, but keep reading. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox your donkey or any of your animals, nor any immigrant residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe Sabbath day. Now, Sabbath is interesting. Because a lot, most scholars agree that there's nothing in history that points toward any other culture or civilization observing Sabbath. As a matter of fact, in Jesus' day, the Romans thought that the Jewish people were lazy because they took one day off every week. But there's nothing in any civilization before the Hebrew people that says, take a day off. Not just you, Everyone. 
Not just those of you who have privilege and wealth and prestige and rights and a really nice 401k with flex time for vacation. Everyone, including your animals, rest. This was unbelievably profound and not even ahead of its time. It was from outside its own time because it didn't exist. And what it was suggesting was whether you are a servant, whether you are an immigrant, whether you are a child, whether you are an adult, whether you are an animal, it does not matter. You are all equal when it comes to Sabbath because I'm asking all of you to rest. And then in this commandment, God says to the people, don't forget you were slaves too. Now why would God point to that? Well, because when you were a slave, you never got a day off. Every day was like the day before and the day after. You woke up and you worked. And as we know, for the Hebrew people working under the, um, the, the slave drivers of Egypt, they were brutal to them. Every single day you worked, you never got rest ever, and there was never a chance of you even asking for it. It's as though God is saying, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget what was done to you. Don't do the same thing to others. You see, it was this connection between slavery and Sabbath, between the equality that existed under the umbrella of Sabbath that led people to say, you know what Sabbath is really about? It's about liberation. Sabbath is about freedom. It's not this heavy yoke that we have to wear and be like, oh, I guess we can't do anything today. It is to remind ourselves that we are not human doings, we are human beings. All of us. Nahum Sarna, the Hebrew scholar, says this about Sabbath. Human liberty is immeasurably enhanced, human equality is strengthened, and the cause of social justice is promoted by legislating the inalienable right of every human being, irrespective of social class and of draft animals as well, to 24 hours of complete rest every seven days. Social justice, liberation, connected to rest? Yes. That's how massive Sabbath is, and it seems that Jesus knew and had this in mind. Listen to the way he speaks to the woman first. When he sees her and calls her forward, he says, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. He, most of the time, he says, your faith has healed you. But now he's using language like set free. This is the kind of language you, you would use towards someone who is incarcerated being pardoned toward a slave who's been liberated. And then, when the synagogue leader gets upset, listen to how Jesus responds. He says, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your donkey or your ox from the stall and lead it out to give it water? And then he says this, then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound, that's the language of slavery, for 18 long years be set free on the Sabbath from what has bound her? In other words, what Jesus is saying is, hey, you think I might be upsetting the order of things, but what I'm doing is I'm actually reclaiming the reason this day exists in the first place. 
You see, organized religion didn't really seem to bother Jesus in the least. And I say that because if you read through the Gospels, he goes to the festivals, he participates in the festivals. Even the night before he was executed, he has, enjoys the Passover meal with his disciples. Jesus goes to the temple. We know that he's in synagogues all of the time. It wasn't organized religion that seemed to bother Jesus. What bothered Jesus is when organized religion that was intended to give people an experience of the divine, when organized religion that was intended to liberate actually became something that hindered people from an experience of God, actually became something that didn't liberate but oppressed. What bothered Jesus was having a piano in the corner of the room saying, we're not going to hear any of its music because it exists for itself. What bothered Jesus was anytime someone said religion and all of its attending rituals exists for itself. No, it doesn't. Not in the least. Just like Sabbath points beyond itself, healthy religion, healthy ritual, ritual always points beyond itself to the bigness of the divine, to the heart of God, which is love in our world. And I'd love to say that I can stand here and read this story about this fella in the, in the synagogue and go, I just don't understand how he missed that somehow. And one of the things I know is that so often for people who do read the Bible, when we feel like we found the moral of the story is we put ourselves in the place where we're like standing next to Jesus, shaking our head at all the people that don't get it. That's reading the Bible. That's not allowing the Bible to read us. And the reason I say I wish it was more difficult for me to look at this guy and go, oh, I don't know how you missed it, is because I do know how he missed it. Over 20 years ago is when I began working as a pastor. And the first church where I worked was a really large church in Michigan. And um, one of the things that I did there is I worked with a recovery program that was not far from our building, and I would mentor young men coming out of recovery. And one of these guys, I met him, and the second I met him, I'm like, I'm going to like this guy probably than anyone else, better than anyone else I've ever met. He had a long history of in and out of rehab programs, had a long history of drug abuse. When I met him, he was nine months sober, which was the longest he had ever been sober in his life from the time that he was 14. He was now late 20s. He had this new lease on life in some ways. He started attending our gatherings, and he and I started hanging out. We hung out more than I normally, what we were supposed to do as the mentor. We just started hanging out and grabbing lunches because we liked each other. Eventually, one Sunday, he came down, and he told me he had met a girl, and then a few weeks later, I met that girl, and then a few months later, it was a little bit more serious, and then a few months after that, there was a ring, and there was a question, and there was a yes, and they got engaged. And after they were engaged, he came to me and asked me if I could perform or officiate their wedding, and I was like, of course, I'll perform your wedding. That would be my great joy. And so there was some paperwork that he was sent that they had to fill out so that I could officiate the wedding. And one of the things that I had just become aware of is that this particular church had put in place a list of rules and that if you couldn't abide by all of these rules or if you didn't agree to all of these rules, then a pastor at the church where I worked couldn't do the wedding. 
And I had kind of brushed it off because I just didn't really agree with it. And I was like, I'll kind of do my own thing. Until one Sunday morning, I was actually getting ready to preach and I was sitting down in the front row. And this fella came down, sat down next to me and looked at me and asked me about these rules because they were in the packet he was sent. And he said, is the church really telling me that you can't do my wedding? And I said, yes, but, and he stood up and looked at me and said, well, screw all of this. And he didn't say screw all of this. It's a kid's program, so we're using that word. And he walked up the middle aisle. I called him. I emailed him. I never saw him again. And I can tell you 20 years on from that, that is still one of my greatest regrets as a pastor. That this guy who was on the courageous road to sobriety was told that someone who had spent time with him and poured into his life couldn't participate in something as sacred as a wedding ceremony because there were a few rules that the institution said, you need to abide by these. I wonder how many of you here, in your own way, can identify with that guy who walked up the aisle. Those of you who heard someone say, you know, there's six days to do this. Come back tomorrow for healing. Those of you who felt like you've been kicked to the curb, dismissed, overlooked, ignored, because this is what the Bible says. Don't argue with me. I'm just telling you what God says. I wonder how many of you are sitting here this morning and you've been deeply wounded by people who believe that it's the religion itself, the ritual itself, that that's the goal, and they've forgotten and they failed to see that no, all that is is a springboard and a vehicle that is supposed to lead us into the heart of a loving God. Well, I can tell you this sincerely, as someone who represents the church, as someone who's worked in this institution and industry for over 20 years, if you've experienced that, I am so sorry. And I'm sorry for the ways in which I have been complicit in that over the years. Because if there's anything we see from this story of Jesus it's that he was always interested in what the ritual and what the religion pointed toward. Sabbath pointing toward liberation. So why would we let this woman who's been bound for 18 years not to be set free right now? I'll ask the band to come up as we conclude. One of the, I think, most beautiful rituals in the church that actually, regardless of denomination, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, one of the most beautiful rituals that we've participated in for thousands of years is Eucharist. And somehow, even this meal, for some, has become a barrier to experiencing the heart of God rather than a vehicle to experience it. You know, it's about who can receive it and who can't. Are you a member? Are you not a member? Have you been confirmed? Have you not been confirmed? That somehow this meal of Jesus to which everyone was invited 
We said, well, it's really only for some. We've forgotten, it seems, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed and he had a meal with his disciples, he gave this bread and he gave this wine to someone who would betray him and someone who would deny him. And he didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, you can't have this until you get things right in your heart. Jesus said, I want everyone to come. And when the crowd got too big, Jesus built bigger tables. He didn't create more boundaries. Somehow we've turned this thing into a worthiness contest. But what Jesus is saying is, no, this exists not as a worthiness contest. It exists to remind all of you that you're welcome regardless of who you are or where you are. St. Augustine said of the Eucharist that the Eucharist is Christ as bread awaiting hunger. And typically it's the sinners who are more hungry than the saints. So this is why we invite all of you to come all of you to participate because this isn't our table. This is Jesus' table. And our focus is not the Eucharist itself, but we understand that this is a vehicle so that we all might see and experience and understand the heart of God found in Jesus, the gift of grace that it represents. And so as you come, there's stations down here in front and on the sides. We ask that you'd either use the center aisle or the side aisles and return to your seats using the diagonal aisles. And as you prepare, may you hear these words of liturgy. This is not, this is the table not of the church. This is the table of our Lord and King Jesus who invites everyone to come to eat, to drink. This table is not about who is in and who is out, who is deserving and who is not deserving, who is worthy and who is unworthy. So come, knowing there is nothing to prove, knowing Christ is the bread awaiting hunger. Eat and drink and enjoy God's constant grace. Come, because it is the Lord who invites you, and it is his will that those who want him should meet him here.